Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Build Amazing Things Securely. I'm still Laura Belmain, and we are on a journey together where we are looking at how we develop secure software, but more focused on the why, because we're building the future made of amazing technologies, technologies that are going to change the world. Today, I am absolutely thrilled to have with me John Gelsey. Now, uh, for those who know who he is, he needs no introduction, but instead of me butchering his introduction, which I have tried to write three times now, I'm going to get John to introduce himself. So, John, who are you as a human and why would I be talking to you today? Uh, well, let's see. Um, I, uh, I think it's accurate to describe myself now as unemployed. Um, that, that tends to like kill the conversations with like, you know, at VC meetings and such, which is awesome. Cause you know, I figure if they, they're not smart enough to have done a research on the people attending, why, why spend any time with them? Um, but in, in reality, what that really means is I'm right now, I'm sort of doing help, helping out startups, um, uh, doing some consulting, sitting on a few boards, advising, I really should say, sitting on a few boards, all tech startups, because my background is before, before I became unemployed, or I became unemployed when I was fired by uh, the acquirer of my last company, and the acquirer was Apple, and my last company was XNOR.ML, an Allen Institute for AI here in Seattle, and uh, University of Washington spin out that did really uh, uh, compelling uh, edge machine learning, which means pattern recognition. And if you have an iPhone, a modern iPhone, you're using our technology in there right now. We became one of the sort of the, the core of uh, Apple's um, uh, machine learning. Um, uh, team uh, post acquisition. Um, before that, I was with a security company in the Seattle area um, called Auth0, uh, which was sold two years ago to Okta for six and a half billion dollars, which was, uh, uh, I think, the largest private transaction ever in Seattle history. Uh, one of the largest transactions in the U.S. Uh, over the last few years. Um, before that, seven years with Microsoft and uh, strategy, corporate development, that means acquisitions or investments. Before that, six years as a VC with Intel Capital. Um, and then I started my career, I actually had a real job at one point um, as a supercomputer designer for a company called Convex Computer in the, uh, the Dallas, Texas area. And we were acquired in the mid 90s by Hewlett Packard to be the high end of their server line. If you've ever used an HP Superdome for the older uh, uh, listeners to this podcast. Um, <laughs> That was one of the machines that I, I designed, uh, we're going to design team for. So. Uh, John, 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 where do we even begin? Um, uh, so what I love about you is um, I was reading through your LinkedIn um, prepping for this, and you're the only person I've ever seen that has this amazing list of accolades. And then just at the line at the bottom where most of us put, and I have a dog, you also, you have, I invented a US patent for hydrogen fuel cells. So uh, what an amazing set of experiences and, and, and technologies to have been around. You know, we're talking about base, building the amazing things of the future. And at many stages of your career, you've been around the future that was to come. Um, so thank you so much for your time. Can I ask, though, I'm going to have to ask because I need to feel like you're actually mortal somewhere underneath here. Did you ever have like that rubbish part time job before all of this? Have you had a normal mortal job? Uh, yeah, I, I started delivering newspapers when I was 12 years old. Phew. Okay, good. Good to know that the, the, the we, we can all get to where you are. And and I was a I was a busboy in the the local Chinese restaurant for a while. Um, okay. So clearly at the bottom of the totem pole, um, and um, and uh, it kind of got better from there. I uh, when I when I uh, when I left that job, 
through by just by chance, somebody I got a became a gopher at a lab at the a geophysics laboratory at the University of Houston, and I got to like pour silicon molds of salt domes and other things that oil people care about that we would like um, put in a big in a giant water tank, which I also as a whatever I was at the time, 16 or 17 year old, got to go go diving in to adjust things. Um, and that was awesome. That was like the, the best uh, minimum wage job uh, ever. Uh, Fantastic. And, and they also had, they'd been given, this is, shows how old, how, how old I am and how long ago, they had a VAX mini computer, a digital equipment VAX mini computer. And uh, as well as a, even worse, a Raytheon 704 with actual magnetic core memory. And so that was where I started getting exposed to like interesting computers and I would like borrow people's accounts and start playing with them and, and such. And that was, uh, I, I highly recommend uh, those kinds of uh, uh, low end minimum wage jobs. Um, if it gives you access to interesting technology that might inform what you really might want to do later in life. So. That's really cool. And actually now spotted the little crossover between us. My first programming job was as a COBOL and SCL developer on a VAX uh, VMS emulator because oh, they couldn't awesome. actually get the real computers anymore. So we were writing emulators on top of emulators. Right. Well, you said, you said COBOL, so you have my sympathies, but, um, but you know, Absolutely. all programming is good. So <laughs> Yeah, I, I've, I've lived and learned. All right. Okay. So let's have a talk. So you've been around all of these future technologies what what has driven you to be at, at the edge of these? Why has it just been luck? Has it been judgment? What what got you to the position where you were, you know, at the edge of authentication, as would become widely rolled out um, at the in the place where machine learning becomes part of what Apple does day to day? Um, actually, I think it's primarily luck. Uh, to say the truth, um, I think my career is best described as a series of serendipitous events. Um, you know, that being said, you know, I guess luck favors, favors the prepared. Um, I have always had an inclination of being um, um, easily bored, I guess I'll say. Um, and so sort of attracted to stuff that is uh, uh, kind of on the edge and hasn't been done before um, or hasn't been done that way before because everything's been done before. Um, and more than anything else, try to see if I could, maybe I could do it. Because it's kind of fun to test yourself. Uh, my joke is, um, it's it's like running a marathon. I mean, nobody normal ever runs a marathon to impress anyone else. Or if you think you're impressing anybody else, you're fooling yourself. You do it just to see if you can do it. Um, and you know, if you can, awesome. You're you've 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 it's it's very satisfying. You know, if you can't, like you know, nobody else knew you were doing it. So cool. You, you haven't lost anything. And so the. Um, yeah, I guess it was sort of the natural curiosity, but also the the eagerness to try and sort of see what what I might be able to do, especially when it wasn't something that we were I was supposed to be able to do. So I, I highly recommend people trying stuff that um, they're told that they they shouldn't should not be able to do. Uh, I, I absolutely love that as a message, especially given what we talk about in this podcast. A lot of the technologies we you know we we collect the stories of from agriculture to fashion to gaming, all of them were told at some point. Why, why this isn't possible don't don't do that that's a silly idea um and i think that's that spirit that underpin underpins new technologies that go on to change individual spaces Absolutely. um let, so let me, yeah actually if i could let me tell one other one other an illustrative anecdote so back back when i was a vc for intel capital i had one one deal i brought in for um uh, uh consumer storage um that my committee hated, and they they told me how dumb I was because clearly Microsoft was going to do this. 
And, you know, no, nobody going to, you know, head to head against Microsoft could ever win. So why was I even, you know, why did I even waste their time? And I didn't really have a good answer for that. And after I got to Microsoft, <laughs> I realized the answer was that Microsoft does indeed have brilliant, brilliant people and sort of more money than God. And so, yes, they could do anything they wanted to. They can't, but except they can't because everybody's booked up for the next 18 to 24 months, number one. And so if they, if you have some exciting new thing that you want to go do, especially as a network effect, and so you need to be first mover, they can't move quickly enough, number one. Number, number two, it's Microsoft. Their focus is on their like billion dollar, or maybe right now their $10 billion product lines. And so you come in and say, well, look at this. This could generate $100 million the first year. They're like, $100 million? You mean 47 minutes of cash flow? So what? <laughs> and so, so when... I, I, I often hear of people not doing something because they think the competitive environment is, is, is not um, uh, tractable for it. Don't worry about that. Um, you, can, you can count on your competitors for whatever your new product, your technology is being. Actually, they're like really, really busy with whatever business model and product they have right now. And your cool new thing that they could do, they won't do. Okay, until you're moderately successful and they say, oh, maybe we should start paying attention to X. But even then, it'll take them 18 months to get organized. So, so yeah, if you have a cool new technology and you're convinced is, or excuse me, a product offering technology, whatever, and you're convinced it's really cool and nobody else is, is doing it and, you know, just, just go for it. Don't worry about the competition. You can, you can count on their incompetence to protect you for at least a few years. I, I love the message of this. I'm hopeful that our audience will, you know, be inspired if they've had that like little itch that they've been like, oh, I should totally do that. You should totally do that. Yeah, John told you. Um, so, okay. So now I have to bring it back to security, right? So I live in this weird hybrid space between the software development world and the security world. And often those two sides of me are at odds. So in your view, and we're asking for feelings and opinions here, John. So, you know, I, I do not judge. Where does security fit into these early, new, amazing technologies? How important is it that we have it there? And where, where's the line that we draw of what we can and can't do when something's super early stage? Um, I've got a prejudice here, having been part of a security company. But I think I would have said this in, like, you know, day, day one of my career. It's really important. It's not something you can compromise on. The reason is, is that security is a form of technical debt. Okay. You will, if you ignore, if you ignore a security aspect, I'll just make up some silly thing, you know, uh, you know, I'll, I'll do the 2FA later. I, I don't need that now. I mean, it's a, I have complex password rules, you know, that, that that's good enough. Mm -mm. No, um, you will be hacked. Um, you will have to uh, respond to a security vulnerability that you've, you know, ignored or put out of your mind in the future. And it's a heck of a lot harder to respond in the future than it is to, to do it right on, on day one. Okay. Now there's always a compromise. If I have to spend, you know, I delay product shipment for a year and I'm going to run out of money in six months of, you know, delay product shipment for a year to put in a security feature. Okay. You know, yeah. I mean, that's sort of a bigger, you know, that I guess I guess that makes you more secure if your if your product is dead and you're not selling any. That's pretty secure. Oh um, no. <laughs> but but um, so you, you know there's always that sort of judgment call, but it's rarely the oh my god we're going to slip everything for a year because of some you know putting in a security feature. No, you it it's, it it doesn't take much time and you do it now or it hopefully doesn't take very much time because 
fast forward a year or two years and you're wildly successful. And by the way, you should always plan on being wildly successful. Don't plan on, uh, I don't know, you know, we'll be able to fix it. They'll only have 10 customers. It's like, no, you're going to be wildly successful and you're going to have 10,000 customers. Now you're going to go back and um, uh, obsolete all of their applications because your library has a security vulnerability into it, in it. And they've got to uh, uh, actually, they've got to rewrite their code because you needed sort of one additional argument for a, I don't know, whatever, some secret or something on, on, on in, in your in your library. It's like, that's really painful. And you're going to have like massive complaints from your customers. And if you just done it right to begin with, you would never have to deal with that. It is a form of technical debt. So you, uh, to me, the, the answer is always no, you got to do it on day one. So now here's, oh, I'm sorry, and then I have a, a second sort of corporate strategy legal thought on this. So I have a hypothesis which um, I've had for, I don't know, seven or eight years now, which hasn't come quite to fruition, but we're getting a lot closer, that security is the new asbestos. So in the US, there is, um, uh, in fact, I have a friend from college who made lots of money from suing as companies that generated asbestos that caused their workers or other people to get sick, okay? And that was a, you know, a massive legal industry. <laughs> you know, lots of people made lots of money other than the asbestos companies who all went bankrupt. Um, Security is kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, the Johns Mansville or whoever was like spraying asbestos dusts everywhere. They were like, hey, you know, it's a little cheaper to do this. Like, fine, you know, it's just asbestos. What's, what's the harm? And whatever it was 20 years later, they were, they were bankrupt because it's like, oh, there is actually a massive harm for this. You have externalized your cost savings onto the population. Um, and in fact, not only you, 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 you saved, you know, a penny by externalizing it, but this is costing you, you know, a hundred dollars because you've caused so much damage from this. This is what the, the risk security has. I save a week out of my schedule by not putting in a security feature. And I suddenly, you know, uh, opened up uh, my social application to, I don't know, the Russian mafia or wh whatever they're called now that do the do hacking or, or whatever third party, you know, uh, uh, private mafias, state sponsored mafias. There's a bunch of them out there because it's a great business. Um, and they just use this to compromise, I don't know, you know, a military installation or, you know, to... Uh, you know, compromise a, a giant corporation, and suddenly there's like billions of billions or tens of billions of dollars that have been risked because somebody's been able to do a phishing attack by impersonating you, with, by by pretending to be you on your stupid social application that had a vulnerability in it, and or or you've killed hundreds or thousands of people if it's a military thing or whatever. You know, it's incredible downside risk of the of of in, compared with the tiny cost savings you have by not doing security. So I describe all of this because it would be context for the court case, the asbestos-like court case. It's like, oh, John Co. didn't do the one week of effort that would have like stopped, you know, the, the thing from exploding. You know, jury, would you want to take a judgment against him? And those judgments are already happening. It's going to accelerate. So it's like, I mean, would you like design a car that had a gas tank that would explode when you looked at it? Not that you're Ford of Ford, the Ford Pinto in 1974. No, you won't. You won't. Let's build applications that are you know insecure and hence are going to get people killed or cost my customers or myself tens of billions of dollars. You know, do do it right the first time, and then finally, don't be. You know, it's embarrassing because we know how to do security right. Don't you know? I mean, you're a bad engineer if you're not doing security right right now. 
Oh, oh, I love this, John. Like, just, uh, just for your own personal satisfaction, you should be doing security right because it's just sloppy not to. I, I love that because I, you know, we, we all know people who are engineers, and there's different personality types. We have the folks who are just curious and want to play and explore. We have the folks who, you know, they are perfectionists. You know, they they are the software crafts people, if you will, the the ones who want to make sure that the abilities are all managed well, um, and I think. All the more engineers we get, and I think my last uh, my last bit of research showed there were about 30 million in the world. Um, the more we get of each of these personality types, so there we go. Listen to John; you're bad at your job if you don't consider this. Now I can never be that bold, but he can, so that's wonderful. Now um, I think this is actually a really nice segue in talking a little bit about your journey with Auth0. Now obviously you've done many other wonderful things, um, and this isn't just about Auth0 as a product. So you know. This, we're not here to try and sell things, but I think it's interesting to how on earth you got to the point where you had an authentication tool, if you will, that was being used by so many organizations over the world and, and became that, you know, giant acquisition it was. So what's the backstory? Did, did you just wake up one day and go, you know, I really love authentication? Uh, no, actually. Um, the, the backstory is that the two technical co-founders, Matthias and Eugenio, had started uh, actually Auth10 LLC back in early 2013, and they couldn't make a go of it. They it was essentially I mean they were hoping to be a product company. They essentially they they got like one professional service job. So Eugenio and I, by serendipity, um, happened to sit on a nonprofit board for a for a school for for kids on the autism spectrum here in Seattle. Eugenio's kid is, is on the spectrum. And so we, we sort of got to know each other through that, that board work. Um, and so I guess midway through 2013, he started lobbying me to be CEO. It's like, oh, you know, you could be really helpful. And I'm like thinking to myself, I've got this cushy Microsoft job. Why would I want to go work with your stupid startup? Um, you know, so I politely declined. But, you know, he's was persistent and he's charming and he's, he's smart. And, and I actually had authentication as part of my... Uh, strategy portfolio, corporate portfolio at, at Microsoft. So I was sort of familiar with it to a degree, you know, as a as a sort of naively, I guess I'll say, as a you know, the, whatever finance or strategy guy or whatever. And I was kind of realizing as I sort of learned more about what they were doing, it's like, well, you know, there's probably a reasonable niche here, and I suspect I could take what they're struggling with trying to get off the ground, and I could probably turn it into something that could be at least a few tens of millions of dollars of revenue because it's a giant market and you know we could have a decent exit and you know cool you know why not let me just see if i can do it let me see if i can run this marathon um and that was how i fell into it so not intentionally serendipitously but then i guess i'll say as i said before luck favors the prepared so if i had enough background so it's like ah, i can kind of see how i would connect the dots let me see if i can make those dots connect and why do you think, you know, in your opinion, that Altera has been so popular with the development community? What What is it about that technology that means that people just reach for that instead of rolling their own authentication? Um, it's a lot easier, as maybe the the summary. Actually, my the dean of my engineering school, UT Austin, University of Texas at Austin, used to tell us. And when he first said this, I was like, "What?" He said, "A good engineer is a lazy engineer." I said, "What?" He says, "Yeah, because." You know, your boss will tell you to do X. And if you do X immediately, you know, a month later when, you you know, he'll say, oh, by the way, all the requirements changed and all of your work's sort of wasted. So you kind of do things sort of as 
in the most efficient way possible. But of course, all software engineers know that you know you can easily get consumed in like rewriting your own, you know, reinventing the wheel. And so you don't do that anymore. I mean, back when 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 I was a kid, you know, you'd write a lot of stuff from scratch. You know, now of course, uh, software development is is is, um, is uh, uh, grabbing components and and putting them together. It's composable essentially for the most part. Um, um, and then you sprinkle on your own business logic or whatever the heck it is. And so um, the uh, where it, where Auth0 differentiated itself from all of the other players at the time, the Stormpaths and Microsofts and Okta and ForgeRock and Ping and everybody else, is that we were easier to use. And we were easier to use, I I think for sort of two two reasons, um, and this is I think Matthias's genius more than than anything else. So so Matthias had sort of came up with the idea of Auth0 as he was working through a consulting project he was doing for GlaxoSmithKline, replatforming them their authentication, and kind of his summary was, you know, this is pretty hard for me. I mean, like, what, what about like an ordinary engineer? Oh my God. I mean, he meant ordinary in that not someone who was steeped in the all the arcana of authentication. Because then here's the second part that authentication, while conceptually it's pretty easy, it's like, hey, look up a username and a password and we're done, right? It's just a database. You know, it's a bunch of security engineers and every security engineer is trying to impress every other security engineer. And there's all these acronyms and this and that, and you have to have this flexibility and corner case here. And, and so when I'm using a ping or a forge rock or whatever, man, it's painful if you are not a, you know, super wizard, <laughs> been, been at it for a long time. Auth0, in, a, in effect, emulated this, the, the, the motion that a Stripe or a Twilio had, and that they have a, there's a commodity backhand that, because of reasons, because of the way it's evolved in the market, it's like really hard to use. I mean, have you ever tried to use the Bank of America APIs for credit card transactions? I mean, don't. It's, it's just massively painful. But they do it for good reasons if you're a payments person or if you're a communication person for SMS like Twilio. Here's an abstraction layer that makes something that's hard because it's um, complex and there's social reasons for the engineers there and the companies there make, continuing to make it complex, making that an abstraction layer to make it easy so you can just do what you want to do. You know, send the SMS or get the credit card or get my you know, login authenticated and get a security token from Active Directory or from whoever my, my backend is. So Auth0, Auth0's magic and sort of the realization that Matthias and, and then when he brought in Eugenio as well, had the, of there's an opportunity here for making a, for having an abstraction layer that was mostly prescriptive, but was still flexible enough so that the security engineers can do the, their magical corner case security thing. Um, um, that uh, in the same way there was that, that op market opportunity for a Twilio or a Stipe. We, one of our, relatively early customers was AGL, the largest utility in Australia. And I remember the CTO telling me, you know, um, he said, um, I've done uh, six digital transformations. Nobody knows what digital transformation means, by the way, but um, he done okay. six of them. We won't tell anyone. Yeah, and they, they all required authentication. And he says, you know, we are at month two with you guys, Auth0, where we're in year two for each of the other once. And he says, it's because authentication is a tar ball covered with razor blades. Every time you touch it, your fingers get bloody and it's just like, oh my God. 
And you guys like abstracted all that away from us. So we can kind of touch it and it just, and, it, and it's, we got it to work and now we can move on. Um, that was the, the, the powerful thing, uh, making the complex, it's complex for a reason backend, abstracting it for the 90% of cases where I don't really need to understand all of that abstraction and still being flexible enough for that last 10% for you know, your weird corner case inside, inside your enterprise, which everybody has. Um, that was sort of the, the magic. And again, it's, it's the same motion that Twilio or Stripe or you know, other, other um, abstractions in front of you know, uh, complex commodity backends uh, have used. Anyway, I saw that dynamics and said, okay, that's something we can play with. So that, that's, th this is really interesting because I think uh, there's definitely a lot of feelings on the internet about, you know, building your own authentication system. And I think just this week alone, we've had you know, very young companies um, being very public with how you should always just build your own because it's super easy and it only takes an hour. Um, and many of us who've been around a little while longer, have a few more gray hairs, just kind of quietly sit back and go, oh, cool. Good luck. Um, but I think a lot of the reason we can build some of the amazing technologies that we're doing right now and can do so with a degree of security built in is the idea that we have now established commodity services, as you're describing, you know, the Twilio's and the Stripes and all of the other competitors in those spaces that take those bits away so we can focus on what makes our problem interesting to us. So, you know, if I happen to be in fashion technology, I don't care about authentication, but I need it there. I want to focus on my little uh, part of the world. So that's where how Authera got to where it was, right? World famous, massive acquisition, fantastic big party. So as someone who's been around that space for a while, and, you know, you must have been asked questions on it many, many times, where do you think this space is headed? Where is authentication going to go? Excellent question. Um, to tell you the truth, I won't, I won't be surprised if it looks 20 years from now kind of like what it looks like now. And the reason is that it's a, I don't know, it's why the US still has like the stupid imperial system instead of the metric system, even though clearly it's much better to use the metric system, it's more efficient and easier, blah, 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 except that there are so many dependencies, actually, let me step back and put it a different way. Um, people would come to me and say, hey, you know, Osiro is amazing because, you know, you, you, you have a new way to do authentication and I've got another company that's going to be the successor to Osiro. It's another new way to do authentication. I'm like, you don't get it. Osiro is not a new way to do authentication. Osiro is a way to deal with the authentication system you were handed inside your enterprise. That was a piece of shit. And it was a piece of shit not because of bad engineers. It's because all authentication is a sort of a, it's always a federation of a bunch of different sources of truth. And there's the weird corner cases. And I'm the German citizen in Bavaria. And I've got to do this one additional check for GDPR or whatever, you know, the German GPA, whatever the heck it is. And so I need a solution that is not a new way to do authentication. It's a solution that allows me to deal with the ways I've been forced, I'm being forced to use authentication today in it, to make that easier, more tractable. And so I can then go on and do my real work as opposed to getting this stupid authentication component working. And that's why I'm worried, I'm thinking that authentication is gonna look about the same 20 years from now as it does now is because you'll still have all of those weird corner cases where I've got the custom database running and that was written in COBOL and uh, IBM something or other, that's still around for, for some good business reason, you know, um, or bad business reason and just there for laziness. I don't care, I gotta work with it, I don't have a choice. 
And so I, I got to have that abstraction layer that makes everything, makes all of the different little pieces and weird exceptions and such in my enterprise work. And the only way I get to go to the, the bright, shiny, new, here's the much better way to do authentication, sort of the metric system analogy, is to get everybody else to use the metric system. And they don't do that. You know, there are going to be reasons for dragging their feet. And you still got to, you know, think in pounds and inches and cups and, and you know, stuff like that. Um, and so um, I, I, I will be surprised if we see a, 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 a sea change in authentication 20 years from now. But, you know, I'm no technical expert in authentication. That's, you know, Matthias's job. Maybe, maybe he'll have a different opinion. So. Maybe. Maybe we should have a chat sometime. Uh, but I, I think there's some there's important things to pick out of that. So not all amazing things that we need in the world are sexy problems. You know, authentication isn't a sexy problem. It is a very boring, very technical, with a lot of edge cases problem. But it's essential to enabling all of those other things that we yep. want to do. And so, you know, perhaps, you know, the key message in it isn't that we need to overhaul the security technologies entirely. Well, there's some good reasons to do some of it. But we need to just accept that sometimes these unsexy problems just have to be solved. And they have to be solved early and they have to be solved well. And if we don't have to solve them, all the better. Completely agree. And in fact, I think the the, the most boring problems are actually the sexiest problems. But those are those are the, the problems that everyone has, which means that you've got a giant market. Yeah. Um, and you can do a little bit better. Um, and that is a, you know, to the market, you know, enormous numbers of billions of dollars in savings and therefore, you know, compelling reasons to start using your your approach rather than somebody else's. I mean, look at, look at, I don't know, here's a crappy analogy, but you know, look at Uber. It's like, here's taxis. That's a pretty boring problem, you know, that I'm going to make a little, little bit better. Um, you know, it's like with a phone. It's like, okay, fine, I guess, you know, and that was... You know, whatever that's worth now, you know, like tens of billions or hundreds of billions of dollars. So um, have you got a pick for what the next, you know, boring but sexy problem is going to be to solve? Ooh, I don't know. There's so many of them. The thing is, is what you what you have to look for, your, your heuristic, is you look for the technology inflection points. It's like, hey, everybody's got an iPhone in their pocket that enables a... Uh, slightly more efficient or maybe, you know, incredibly more efficient approach to a boring problem. You know, I couldn't have done Uber very well, not that I did Uber. Uh, I, Uber couldn't have been done in, you know, 2005 with, you know, Windows Phone and, a you know, Nokia 30, whatever it was, you know, awesome smartphone they had, or excuse me, a dumb phone they had. Um, you know, I, I really needed the, the app and you know, the GPS and things like that. And so, um, I guess I would start looking for, to say the truth, looking for sort of the dumb things, uh, the dumb commodity things that are painful, um, that are enabled by, you know, some cool new technology that's hitting the world. Now, the, the sexiest new technology that's hitting the world is actually sort of the, the large language models, GPT-4 and its soon-to-be successors. Um, and those are actually kind of impressive to tell you the truth. I mean, to tell you the truth, I kind of have to, I'm very cynical about new, amazing new technologies because they're usually not amazing. Um, but like I had to do like a stupid little website a month ago. And so it was just for fun. I went to, to Bing and said, hey, you know, write me a website that's got a button to do this and blah, 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 blah. And I wrote it without errors. I'm like, oh my God. And then I tried, uh, I'm hacking around with microcontrollers right now for, for reasons. 
And you know, it's like, hey, on a you know an, an ESP32 microcontroller, write me a routine that does X. And it did it perfectly, except for like one one uh, you know variable specification was you know it said long instead of long long in a printf. And I'm like, what the hell? This is amazing. And so the again, these things aren't smart. I mean, all it is is you know probabilistically picking like the next token after the last token and, and such. But it is an accelerator in the same way that I don't know, Excel was an ex or excuse me, spreadsheets were an accelerator when Lotus first came out. Um, you know, whatever that was, 40 years ago. Um, and that it's not any, it's not making me as the accountant or the finance person or whatever any smarter. It's just, it's just a it's it's making me more more efficient. And so there's gonna be stuff out there that large language models make significantly more efficient. And I think there's gonna be a, you know great businesses using large language models. Um, for making, I don't know what, teaching or, you know, customer support or, I don't know. I mean, it's usually the stuff that I'm not smart enough to imagine, but somebody else says, wait, what about X? Um, and and again, I don't know. I mean, there's there's umpteen million companies, well, whatever, umpteen thousand companies, I'm sure, startups that are going after it now. In fact, I think all of the people who are doing, what I've heard is all the people who were doing crypto fraud are now in the busy doing large language model fraud. But anyway, <laughs> ignore that. I mean, there's a lot of chaff, but there's a lot of like solid stuff going there. Um, what else? I don't know. I mean, there's other, other. I'm sure there's a bunch of other interesting things. Here, here's another one. Um, we, so I'm, I'm at XNOR, so we're doing machine learning on the edge. So we, we, we did some stuff that makes, you know, I can have like really sophisticated models running on CPUs, not needing GPUs or anything like that. So you could run it on like stupid microcontrollers, et cetera. Uh, excuse me, cheap and therefore bigger market, you know, and, and devices. And so we would have people coming to us and saying, yeah, and I'm sure that 5G is really important to you because 5G, I mean, look at all the carrier advertising, 5G enables machine, you know, artificial intelligence. And I remember a conversation with uh, Ali, one of the co-founders and this like brilliant, brilliant machine learning guy. And he says, why are they saying 5G enables machine learning? And I'm like, I don't know. And it, um, and it, it, it turned out, of course, it was complete make-believe. They were just trying to justify 5G. But here's where I was going. The thing that 5G or subsequent communication advances, like Wi-Fi 8, I think I just saw, or Wi-Fi 7 is going to be 30 gigabits in your house uh, wirelessly, is it's enabling cheaper communications at higher bandwidth. And so with 5G and soon 6G or whatever, five years, 10 years, I can do what before was not economical because I needed to spend, you know, 10 cents a megabyte out on the, the edge or somewhere. I can now do it for a tenth of a cent per megabyte. And so I can enable businesses that were never financially possible before because of the advances in wireless communication technologies, be they LAN like the, you know, Wi-Fi 8 or, or LAN like 5G, 6G, whatever. So there's stuff, look for stuff like that. I mean, the LLMs are sexy and, you know, 5G is like, you know, gets marketed heavily, but look for stuff like that where something becomes 10X cheaper than it was a few years ago. Because when something becomes 10X cheaper and that's a component of an important technology, your market, suddenly you've got markets that you didn't have markets before. Um, and that's enables the next Uber or Oscar Hero or, or whatever. So look for those, 10x cheaper inflection points and in some cool technology, excuse me, in a, in a infrastructure technology and, and think of what business you, you can build now that it's that particular component is 10x cheaper.
So that that's pretty good advice. And if you kind of sum up what we've had, we've had a wonderful chat today, John. I've been really enjoying this. Um, and let's pick out those key messages. You can't afford to not build security into your amazing new thing when you build it. It's yeah. cheaper to do it upfront than it is to be hurt by it later. And yep. it's easy to do that. And the, the opportunities for building those new amazing things are only growing. Um, looking around at the technologies that are, are out there that we're able to call upon as commodities, whether that's through you know, uh, messaging, our payments, our authentication, but now increasingly uh, machine learning and uh, our, our trained models. So it's, it's an exciting time to be an engineer. Um, but I think it's also a crucial time to be a secure engineer, if you understand what I mean. Absolutely. It's so easy to skimp on security, and it's such a mistake to do it. You know, the nobody can, nobody will ever discover this vulnerability. You've got to stand on your head and do six things before anybody could discover it. So we're safe. It's like, no, there will be somebody who will stand on their head and do the six backflips or whatever and break in. It, it, there's, there's too much. Um, there's too many smart people out there, and um, I'm a big fan of sort of looking looking at the economics. There's too much economic incentive, and I don't care what you're building. There's going to be an economic if it's at all successful. There's going to be an economic incentive to break into it, and so yeah, do not skip on security because it will be compromised, and you're you will be put out of business or at least be in a world of hurt because of that shortcut you took two years or four years before. Absolutely. Look, thank you so much for your time today, John. It has been an absolute pleasure. Um, and I know that much like me, our audience will have lots to think about after this. So uh, we'll be keeping track of your adventures. Goodness knows where you'll end up next um, after you're done with unemployment, of course. Um, but thank you so much. Uh, it was a pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.